It's entitled, Jesus Sends Out the 72. The Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. Full, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, Peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon and at the judgment than for you. And if you, Capernaum, go, will you be lifted up to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. But whoever rejects me, rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus, full of joy, through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then he turned his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Thanks be to God for the truth we find in his word. Thank you, good sir. Let me try and resurrect my control from the iPad here of the screens. We'll see. We'll see it's working. We've been um, 
we've been starting to look through or continuing to look through Luke's gospel. Last year, uh, you started in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 9, and there was a big question. There was a big question that Luke was helping us explore at that point. Now, can anyone remember the question? What is the whole thing that lead, Luke is leading us up to? The answer to the question? That's the answer. Who, are, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? All the way through, you have uh, the opening of eyes. You see people coming to this realization that this is who Jesus Christ is. Now, I'm trying to... Yep, we're there. I've only got partial here, partial control here. The whole question of who is this man? Now, the second half, the second section of Luke's gospel from chapter 10 through to 19 is answering another question. If Jesus is the Messiah, if Jesus is the king of God's kingdom, what does it actually mean to follow him? That's the question that we're exploring as we're going to spend some time this term in chapters uh, 10 and 11, particularly. We're focusing in there. So last week we opened up and we saw that following Jesus was something that it was all or nothing. Remember, Jesus is pretty in your face kind of words. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man have no place to, to lay his head. I'll follow you, Jesus. First, let me go bury my father. Let the dead bury their dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Remember those words? I don't know if you're taken aback by them, but they're forceful. They're in your face. Jesus is saying, following me demands everything. And this week, we are looking at what it is that once we have given everything to Christ, once we've handed over control, well, what does he want us to do? And we see that being a disciple of Jesus means that we are on a mission. Being a disciple of Jesus means we are on a mission. I want to step back just for a second here and just underline the fact that disciple means Christian. A while ago, there was a... um, there was a, a university group, uh, not around here, one in the States, but uh, fairly prominent, who was putting out resources. And they were talking about how it was necessary to move people from being a, a Christian to that kind of next level. You've heard sometimes people talking about, you know, you, you've received Jesus as your saviour, but have you received him as Lord? Have you heard that kind of language? Can I say, um, you can't receive Jesus as saviour without receiving him as Lord. Uh, that's like, as I said last week, receiving Cameron but not receiving Munro. Uh, you can't have Jesus without uh, Jesus as Saviour without Jesus as Lord. Um, being a disciple is, is the garden variety. And so you can't sit here this morning and go, I'm a Christian. This disciple thing is kind of the next level up. No, Jesus is talking to each and every one of us. And he's saying, if you follow him, you are a disciple. And if you are a disciple, you are on a mission. Yes? Okay, let's dive in. What do you think of when you think of on a mission from God? Okay, this will probably show your age. Um, You'll see the Blues Brothers. Yes, that's at one end. The other end is a little less pleasant. 
we think of crazed fanatics. We've seen mission done badly and we kind of cringe, don't we? In our society, I think Christians have gone quiet. We've gone onto the back foot. We feel scared to open our mouths about our faith. Once I uh, was talking uh, with uh, the office of Isabel Redmond in the Hill, she was our local member. There was a particular issue that I was expressing a bit of concern about. The staffer made it crystal clear to me that any argument that came out of my Christian convictions would not be acceptable. <laughs> I could argue, but don't, don't bring God into this. Many of you are in workplaces, yes, and you've, you've been told. Religion, no, you've got to, you've got to endorse what our society endorses. If you, were, if you were a Christian and you're making a stand, perhaps in light of the recent uh, same-sex marriage debate, did you hear about the, uh, the child uh, entertainment worker in, the, in Canada, uh, Canada, in Canberra, closer to home than Canada, sacked because she posted on her Facebook page, it's okay to vote no. Okay. I don't know what your opinion on that topic is, but we now live in a society that, that endorses active discrimination against people who put their faith out there on the line. Christians have withdrawn. But Jesus tells us, if we are disciples, we are on a mission. So how are we going to do it? We're going to do it, uh, Luke 10, 21 to 24 tells us, I think, uh, how we're going to do it. Today's letter is M, uh, is four of them. Okay, what was last, last week's letter? Last week, anyone it was C, and then before that it was P's. Okay, that's there to help you remember. Yes, it's trite. Um, I'm going to just collapse my proclaim down here because I can't read anything off my screen and I'm going to try and reboot this uh, and see what happens. We have four M's. We have mission, we have mandate, we have message and we have motive. And hopefully they will all appear over there. Um, and hopefully I can get control eventually. I also want to say as we actually dive into this passage we need to be careful because Jesus gives, or Luke gives us a description of what happened rather than a prescription of what must happen. Okay? He gives us a description. This is really important when we are actually in the narrative stories uh, of the Gospels and Acts particularly. Just because it happened that way then doesn't mean it has to happen this way or that way now okay so when you go out on a missionary endeavor are you allowed to take a bag and a spare pair of sandals well a strict prescriptive reading of this would say no you're not leave them at home um, I don't think Jesus really cares what you have in your little knapsack and whether you've got a purse and a spare pair of sandals but at that time that was important for them okay Description, prescription. We have to distill what it is that Jesus wants us to know about being on a mission from God. What's our first thing? Our first thing, we need to recognise that we are on a mission. We can sometimes think that 
mission is just really for the paid professionals. Yes, it's for the people like me and for Colin and for the really uber people, uh, keen people like Stephen who, who does it all and doesn't even get paid, you know, and Aaron and others who dive in. But no, it's actually for everyone. It's for everyone because we see this in Luke's gospel. Chapter 9, Jesus sends out the 12, you know, the paid professionals, the uber disciples. Jesus calls the 12 together. He gave them power and authority to drive out demons, cure diseases. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. If chapter 9 was all we had, you could happily say it's just for the elite. It's just for the leaders. It's just for the uber Christian. It's not for us. But chapter 10 is there, isn't it? And it's not just the 12 who are sent out this time, it's 72. Why 72? Why does Jesus, is it just a random number? Like 63 turned up? No, 72 turned up. Or is there a particular reason? I think Jesus sends 72 to make a point, a point that's a little bit obscure to us, but would be crystal clear to the guys and the girls at the time. The major Bible, the very Old Testament that these people would have been reading, would have been known as the LXX. This familiar ground, the Septuagint, it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. Okay, and if you know your Bibles and you go back into Genesis chapter 10, there is a list of all the nations of the world. Now, does anyone want to have a guess how many nations of the world are listed in Genesis 10 in the LXX version, the Septuagint? 72. Is it any coincidence that Jesus sends out 72 disciples into the harvest field? No, I don't think so. Jesus is sending out his disciples, all of his disciples, to all of the world. And we see this a bit later in Acts 1 verse 8, where Jesus commissions the disciples to be witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He sends out all his disciples to witness to everyone. Can I say, he doesn't send them out solo. Yeah, Christians will share their faith individually, but he actually sends us out as a people. And he sends us out, I think, not just to tell people about Jesus, but to actually see new communities of faith. And one of the great things this morning is that we can celebrate a new community of faith has actually been planted. This is, I think, Tim Keller. Planting new churches is the most effective evangelistic methodology under heaven. Most effective evangel. So if you want to be serious about reaching people for Jesus, you need to be serious about seeing new churches planted. Not just personal evangelism, but actually seeing new communities of faith where disciples can be made and grown and built up. And it's one of the things that excited me about staying as part of the Trinity Network. When I left Trinity Hills, I was dead keen to come and join you guys because we are part of a network of people that are seeing Trinity only. Paul Harrington was here with us last week, told us of a new Mandarin congregation starting up in the city in May. We've got Colin on board. We're looking forward to saying goodbye to Colin and Sharon and 
probably too many of you lovely people for my liking, but uh, to send, to see a new community of faith, to reach a new community down south. The most effective evangelistic methodology. Jesus gives us a mission. And it's a mission out into the harvest field that has urgency. We're not allowed to, they weren't allowed to greet people. Greeting people on the road was something that took a bit of time in those days. You had to observe all the niceties. But they had a mission to tell as many as they could to get people ready for Jesus. It was a mission that not only was urgent, but it was dangerous. Verse 3, they were sent out as lambs without wool, amongst wolves. But it was also a mission, a mission that would bring results. Because who are they to pray to? They are to pray to the Lord of the harvest, the one who owns the harvest. They are to pray to the one that in verse 21, Jesus tells us, is able to reveal himself to us. Sometimes, I don't know how you feel about evangelism, but sometimes when I'm talking to someone about Jesus, I, I kind of feel, oh, you know, how can I get the right words? How can I use the right, most helpful illustrations? You know, what are the arguments? Do you, do you feel this? You know, you just feel like, and you walk away, and if someone, you know, hasn't said, oh, I want to become a Christian, yes. Um, you kind of think, oh, what did I say wrong? What could I, and, and you can fall back on yourself. Jesus tells us, yes, some people will reject the message. But those who accept, it is in the hands of the Lord of the harvest. It's not in our power. It's the Holy Spirit working in that person who brings them. We need to recognize that this harvest will bring results. This mission will bring results. Someone told you about Jesus, yes? At some point, whether you were raised in a Christian family and you were always told about Jesus, or you're like me, where you came into a place and someone told you about the wonder of what God has done. That moment for me, God opened my eyes and said, that's true, I've got to, I've got to act. It's a mission that will bring results. And for 2,000 years, Jesus has been bringing men and women, boys and girls to himself. Disciples are on a mission. Let's jump over that one. Okay. But in our culture, we've actually got to ask, is it valid? We're told all the time, you Christians are so narrow. Yes? You know, you insist that Jesus is the only way, but I'm okay for you to have Jesus, for you to put your faith in Jesus but don't try and tell me that I need Jesus. Have you heard this? It's in the press. Uh, it's all over Facebook. It's in our personal conversations. That may be true for you, but it's not true for me. You Christians should not try and persuade others to be uh, tarred as, a, as proselytizing. It's, it's almost the greatest sin in the world, isn't it? To persuade someone to your point of view. We need to remind ourselves, though, that we actually do have a king who we serve. So we have a whole bunch of people out there telling us that we must be quiet. But we have the Lord Jesus, God's Messiah, 
telling us to go and speak. Telling us of the wonders of what he has done for us. Giving us a message to proclaim. Telling us, as we read in Luke 24, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in Jesus' name to all the nations. That's what he sends us out to do. That's what he sent the 72. That's what he sends each and every one of his disciples. Now, repentance is a, is a word that describes what is happening in your heart. And when you repent, you turn away from what captured your heart and you turn to something new. It's kind of like if you use the illustration, forgive me for this one, uh, it is totally fictitious and totally thought up of on the spot. Okay? Okay, you're going out with a girl, you're going out with a guy. Okay? You, kind of, you love them, you know, you're building your life around them. Okay, and then you meet someone else. You meet someone else who just eclipses that first person. Apologies to whoever they are. Maybe you've had this. It's never happened to me, I'm sure. But, um, and all of a sudden, what the first person wanted isn't the issue. It's what the new love, the new light of your life wants that's the issue. And your life, your heart is reoriented around, you know, to use another illustration, maybe you're one of those guys that loves computer games. You know, you live your life in front of a screen. Is there anyone out there? No? Yeah, yeah. Virtual reality is the only reality that's worth having. Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. But for some of you, life is just lived between your left thumb and your right thumb. Uh, that is where you are. And then all of a sudden you meet her. And she likes outdoor stuff. And all of a sudden, you haven't played for a week. You haven't played f for three weeks. All of a sudden, you're no longer pasty and white. You're actually getting a tan. You're, you're, you're a little bit healthy because someone else has captured your heart. I can say you've repented. You have repented to use Jesus' language of one allegiance and you've put your faith, your trust, your allegiance in someone else. Jesus is saying, repent of all the false gods, repent of all the false kings, all the false idols. We sung of it, didn't we, this morning, where uh, false lords, their power still holds sway. What Jesus calls us to do is to call people to put their faith, their trust their allegiance in the one true king. I also just want to stand back a bit and just point out just how narrow people who say you've got to be open-minded actually are. I don't know if you've thought about this, but if you actually dig down into the argument, there really is no difference between what we're saying and what they're, and what they're saying. Let me say this. Let me explain this. What we're saying is there is one truth, there is one king, you need to put your faith in Christ. That is a worldview, yes? That's one view of actually looking at reality. There's another view that has a different take on Jesus. Jesus is okay, but he's not king. Has a different view on truth. Truth is all relative. It's funny how that phrase, truth is relative, is an absolute statement. Have you noticed that? Okay. 
And so what you actually find is that the people who are saying, you don't need to be narrow, you shouldn't be narrow, you shouldn't tell me about Jesus, you shouldn't tell me that I need to put my trust in him, that is just as narrow as someone who says you should. They're two different views of Jesus. And so what you need to do is actually encourage people to look at the foundations upon which those claims stand. And it stands on the resurrection of Christ. If Jesus rose from the dead, he is the Lord of all. And it doesn't matter whether you say all truth is relative. The truth is a person and that is Christ. You need to deal with him. And so if you have someone out there telling you, Jesus, you don't, I don't need Jesus. Ask them, have you ever looked closely at him? Did Jesus actually rise from the dead? Because if he did, that is a unique event in history. That is unique and surely it validates Christ. Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, identifies the resurrection as the foundation, the center stone of the arch of Christianity. You pull out the resurrection, everything crumbles to ruin. Paul identifies it. He shows the weak spot. So take them there and show them that Christ did rise from the dead. We have Peter and John giving us a great example. Peter and John in Acts 4, there we have it. They're before the Sanhedrin for preaching Jesus. And people are saying, shush, you're making us look bad. Okay, And they say, which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. We have a mandate. We have a mission and a mandate. We also have a message. There we go. The message is something that is proclaimed. Sometimes Christian proclamation, people don't like the idea of a message. Just go out and make a difference in the world. Can I say, making a difference in the world is a good thing? Okay, but the disciples, the 12, the 72 and the church, every disciple, including us, are sent out with a message. We talk about the message as the gospel, the good news, but it's summarized here as the kingdom of God has come near you. Jesus as king is amongst you. His miracles are signs of what God is going to bring about through the death and resurrection of Jesus. That is what they are to proclaim. The king has arrived. Put your allegiance, give him your trust. They are to, they are to proclaim that in Christ's ministry and in the ministry that they exercise in his name, we see the kingdom. Now, they did things that we don't. They cast out demons. They healed people. They raised the dead. I haven't done any of those things. I've prayed for people and they've got well. Not in quite the spectacular ways, can I say, that the apostles seem to do it. And we should be praying for people and we do pray for people. But what we see in the apostolic ministry is the kingdom of heaven breaking through in a new way. Should we expect to do these things? This is a little bit of a controversial sort of topic. Should we? Maybe. I don't think we should rule it out. I think we should be praying that God would do great things. I've heard reliable reports from people I trust, first-hand, uh, first, uh, first-hand eyewitnesses, of things that on what I would consider to be apostolic mission fronts, 
where Christianity is breaking into new ground, God seems to do some extraordinary things. Here in Australia, yeah, I'm not, not seeing what I heard about in Nepal. But you can come and talk to me about that a little bit more. We have a message to proclaim and our deeds, our deeds of compassion, our deeds of love, back that up. We proclaim a message that is either received or rejected. And it has consequences. Jesus, in verse 13, he says, whoa, whoa. What he's not doing is saying, you're going to get it. What he is saying is an expression of grief. Jesus is mourning as he says, whoa. I think we've picked up this phrasing and we say, woe to you as a threat. Jesus is grieving. Jesus' heart is breaking that these cities are rejecting the gospel. Because he's not talking about an opinion. He's talking about heaven and hell. He's talking about glory and shame. He's talking about eternity. He's talking about judgment. And he says this in Luke 10 verse 16. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me, but whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. If we go out and we preach the gospel of the kingdom, we preach the message that Christ, our king, commissioned us to preach, and people reject that, they're not rejecting us. They're actually rejecting him and his heavenly father. You can't be right with God if you don't want anything to do with Jesus. You can't speak of heaven and the blessings of eternity if you want nothing to do with the one who opened the way. Jesus gives us a message to preach. And there is no other message. There is no other name. Acts 4.12. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind that by which we must be saved. Do we believe this? Do we believe this? If we did, would we perhaps be even more committed? Imagine you had, and I know this is a topical point this morning, a cure for cancer. You had it in your back pocket. The first thing you would have done in that meet and greet time, in that conversation time, is run across to Helen and said, I've got something you need. Yes, you would, wouldn't you? Surely. To sit it in your back pocket, knowing that you had the cure for cancer, but knowing that people were dying without it, surely you'd act. Yes? Now imagine that there's an epidemic sweeping our nation. And it's going to kill 98% of our population if stats are right. Are you happy about that? Because that epidemic is sin. And judgment will see each unrepented sinner in an eternity shut out from the presence of the Lord. And we have the words of eternal life. That's why Carl and Meredith and the team at Trinity Unley are planning a church. That's why we want to send 
Colin and Sharon and co. Not that we don't love them. We love them dearly. But we want them to go and tell more people. That's why we want more people here. Because we have a message that is life and death. But some people are still, they're still not happy with this. You know, all this absolute stuff. It sounds really harsh. It sounds, you know, we've come across the people in the mall who've screamed at us, who've shaken fists and we kind of, oh, you know, this kind of absolute truth, this Jesus is the only way. It turns us all into raving fundamentalists. And that's not very pretty. And I don't really know if I want that. But we have a motive a motive that actually makes sure that that won't happen. In Luke chapter 10, verse 17, the disciples come back. The 72 returned with joy and they said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. They're flushed with success. They've had a great time on mission. They've seen lives transformed. Look at what we've done. Now, we need to be really, really careful at this point. We need to be careful because in the Sermon on the Mount, remember the words where people would come to Jesus on those days and say, Lord, on those, did, did we not? And they list all this stuff they've done for Jesus. Do you remember his words? He says, depart from me, I never knew you. These 72 are coming back and goes, look what we've done in your name. We need to be careful. Jesus corrects them. He rejoices with them here. Verse 18, I saw Satan fall like from heaven like lightning. Your mission, the mission that God worked through you, is a victory over the forces of evil. Jesus says it's like Satan being cast down again. But then what's he do? He draws their attention to the fact that it's his authority. I've given you authority to trample snakes and scorpions, overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Gentle reminder, gentle rebuke, perhaps. But what's he doing? He's telling them, just be careful. Because there is a danger in success. Since I've been at Trinity, as I'll talk about the network, Trinity has moved from three churches to nine, soon to be ten. Danger in success. We can look at it and we can go, wow, it's great to be part of a church like this, isn't it? Wonderful to cut new grounds for the kingdom, to see people coming in, giving their lives to Christ. I've seen the attendance at Trinity almost more than double across that time. In a culture where our church, where churches are going backwards, going out the door, they're closing doors, they're shutting buildings. Isn't it wonderful? I'd tell people about the congregation that I'd uh, pastored in the hills where 80% of the congregation was under 50 years of age. And they're like, you know, 99% of the congregation in their church is over 80 years of age. And they're like, but the danger for this is, is that we become like the disciples. Lord, even the demons submit to us in, in your name. What's the motive that doesn't make us proud? Or when we fail, when a church plant falls over, doesn't mean that we despair. What's that motive? Because it is a danger. You see this 
back, you know the, the cute little story about James and John, it's not really cute. Then uh, they're going along and the Samaritan village rejects Jesus. And what do they call down? They say, Lord, you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them. How dare you? How dare you reject Jesus? And what's Jesus do? He rebukes them. Their pride is affronted that their king, their master is being rejected by these dirty, mangy, obnoxious Samaritans. Far from heaven. Jesus rebukes them. Because now is the time for proclamation and salvation. Not judgment. And judgment does not not rest in the hands of James and John, nor us. We need a better foundation. We need a better motive. And it's there in verse 20. Jesus says, Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your name, your names are written in heaven. This is kind of like uh, in, in the villages, uh, they would have a role of the, the village. They'd have like a book, not really a citizenship book, but almost like a, these are the people of our village. Okay? And, and they would be the people of name. They would be the landowners and so forth. Any, any Shakespeare scholars here? Henry V, okay? Uh, Henry V, there's the Battle of Agincourt, you know, the 80,000 French killed and about 120 English at that point, the invention of the longbow, victory of technology. And uh, when they're announcing to Henry the, um, uh, the casualty list for the English, there's about... Sir this and Lord that, and none other of name. None other of name. To have a name was to be someone. And to have a name in the town meant that you belonged. And what's Jesus saying? Rejoice, disciples. Not that you do all this great stuff for me, but rejoice that I've done all this great stuff for you, and you have a name a name that is written not in the local town's archives, but a name that is inscribed in heaven by my grace. Not because you've done so much, you've earned so much, by my grace. It is Jesus that has caused our names to be written in heaven. So as we go out as disciples on a mission with the king's mandate declaring his message, the motive we must speak from is grace. And we speak, as someone said, as one beggar telling another beggar where they can get food. We don't go in going, we've got it all together. Let us tell you how you should live. We go in and saying, we know we don't have it all together. We know that we deserve nothing other than condemnation and judgment. But because of the wonderful grace and mercy of Christ, we have received salvation. We have received blessing. Our names are in heaven. We are loved with an eternal love. We go in not thinking that we're better, not in pride. We can tell you how you should do it, but with humility. Because grace makes us humble. Because if we have come to Christ, we know our desperate need for that grace. We also go in with courage. 
We can speak with courage. It's not nice to be rejected, is it? It's not nice to have someone turn away and say, what you said to me is offensive. I don't want to have anything to do with someone who believes what you believe. Hurts, doesn't it? But in Christ, we will never, we will never be turned away. We will never be rejected from the one whose opinion truly counts. That is the one, the one who wrote our name in heaven. The one whose name himself was mocked and scorned, written on the cross. This is the king of the Jews. He saved, he saved others. Save yourself. The one who was cast out. The one who was scorned. The one who even cried out to his father and was not known. Why have you forsaken me? That one, that one will never turn us away. So we can speak with courage because we know we have an acceptance that will never be revoked. And no matter what they say, no matter what the world thinks of us, ultimately there is one judge and his opinion is what counts. And so we can speak. We can speak with confidence and we can rejoice as Christ rejoice, as we see God at work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you that you have deigned to draw us to yourself through Christ. You've made us part of his people. You've given us a share, the privilege we have of partaking in his ministry, in his mission. Father, we sang earlier of the desperate need of the nations that rebukes our slothful ease. We ask that your spirit would do exactly that. That we would feel the weight of the need. We would see the darkness of this world and the wonder of the light of life that we hold out. Father, show us again your grace that this weight would not crush us. Show us again your power that we might rejoice as Christ rejoiced to see the victory won through the 72. And Father, we look forward to the time when the knowledge of you fills the earth as the oceans fill the sea. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.